calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Infected, book one of the Infected Trilogy. Written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist, Scott Sigler. Performed by the author. Infected is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash infected. Chapter 39, Mommy's Little Girl. Clarence Otto stopped the car. Cell phone pressed to her ear, Margaret looked out the window at a neat two-story brick house on Miller Avenue. White shutters and trim, dead-looking ivy branches covering one side of the house. In the summer, that side would be a flat wall of leafy green, the very epitome of old-school collegiate housing. Amos sat in the back seat, clearly annoyed at the whole process. While he was indefatigable in the confines of a hospital, being outdoors in the cold brought out his surly side. We just pulled up to the girl's house, Margaret said into her cell phone. Tell Otto to stay sharp, Hugh said. I got six bodies over here. It's spinning out of control. Your backup team is there? Margaret turned in the seat to look back, even though she knew what she'd see. Gray van, unmarked, parked right behind him. It's here. We let Otto lead, of course, but I think we're okay. The girl just had Morgellons fibers, no triangles. Fine. Just stay sharp. These guys are psychos, and as soon as you're done, get over here. What have you found? Dew paused. It seems our college boy was an artist. I think you'll want to see this. All right, Dew. We'll be there as soon as we can. Dew hung up without another word. What did he say? Six more bodies, Margaret said absently. The other side of town. We're heading over there when we're done here. In the back seat, Amos hung his head. This was wearing on him, Margaret knew. Behind his sunglasses, Agent Clarence Otto showed no sign of emotion, but the muscles in his jaw twinged slightly. Are you ready, Margaret? Otto asked. She nodded. They approached the house, Margaret and Amos staying two steps behind Otto. Otto knocked on the door with his left hand, his right hand hidden inside his jacket, resting in the hilt of his weapon. There was little chance of danger. Chang's report showed he had given the girl a careful examination, and would have certainly seen anything resembling a triangle or a triangle to be. They still had to keep things as quiet as possible. If they kicked in the door to find a perfectly normal family, a little bit more secrecy would die, and Americans would be a little bit closer to discovering the nightmare blossoming in their midst. Snow covered the ground and the leafless trees. Most of the houses on the street had white lawns, thick with undisturbed snow. Some, like this one, had lawns trampled over and over by tiny feet. 
the snow's beauty crushed by the tireless energy of playing children. The door opened. In the doorway stood a little angel. Blonde pigtails, blue dress, sweet face. She even held a rag doll for crying out loud. Hello there, sweetie, Otto said. Hello, sir. She didn't look afraid at all, nor did she look happy or excited. Just matter of fact. Are you Missy Hester? She nodded, her curly pigtails bouncing in time. Otto's empty right hand came out of his jacket, slowly dropping to hang at his side. Margaret stepped to Otto's right, so the girl could see her clearly. Missy, we're here to see your mother. Is she home? She's sleeping. Would you like to come in and sit down in the living room? She stood aside and gestured with her hand. A regular little hostess. Thank you, Otto said. He walked inside, head turning quickly as he seemed to scan every inch of the house. Margaret and Amos followed. It was a small, simple affair. Aside from a scattered layer of brightly colored toys, the place looked immaculate. Missy led them into the living room, where Margaret and Amos sat on a couch. Otto chose to remain standing. The living room gave a view of the stairs, the front door, and another doorway that led into the dining nook area of a kitchen. How about your daddy? Is he home? Missy shook her head. He doesn't live with us anymore. He lives in Grand Rapids. Well, honey, can you go and wake up your mom? We need to talk to her and to you. The girl nodded, curls jiggling, then turned and ran upstairs. She seems perfectly healthy, Amos said. We'll take a good look at her, but she doesn't seem to show any signs of infection. Maybe cutting out the threads works in the new strain, Margaret said. Morgellons' cases have been going on for years without any triangle growths. Something had to have changed. They're just being built better, Otto said. No disrespect to either of you, but sometimes you think too much. Murray hit it right on the head. Sometimes the most obvious answer is just that, the answer. Occam's razor does seem to apply, Amos said. What's that? Otto asked. Amos smiled. Never mind. It just means you're probably right. All three of their heads turned as a little boy appeared in the open doorway to the kitchen. He couldn't have been more than seven, maybe eight. He wore a cowboy hat, gun holsters on his hips, chaps with fringe, and a slightly crooked black mask. The full-on Lone Ranger costume. Otto tensed at the sight of the six shooters in the boy's hands, but each had a barrel capped with bright orange plastic. Cap guns. Toys. Hold it right there, pardners, the boy said. He made his little voice all gravelly, trying to sound tough, but he just sounded cute. Otto laughed. Oh, we're holding it, Lone Ranger. Is there a problem? Not if you keep your hands where I can see them, mister. Otto raised his hands to shoulder height, palms out. You'll get no trouble from me, Ranger. No trouble at all. The boy nodded, the very picture of seriousness. Well, let's just keep it that way, and we'll all get along real nice-like. Missy bounced down the stairs, making far more noise than should have been possible out of a tiny six-year-old body. My sister'll take real good care of y'all, the boy said. I got me some business to attend to. Be safe, Ranger, Otto said. Cute kid, Amos said, as the boy slid back into the kitchen and shut the door. They heard him banging around, yelling at imaginary robbers. But something about the boy gave Margaret a bad feeling. They'd rushed things, been sloppy. They hadn't even checked to see how many people were in the family. The father was gone. One brother. Was there another? Any sisters? Mommy won't wake up, Missy said. 
I've been trying for a couple of days, but she won't wake up, and she smells funny. Margaret felt a coldness flush through her stomach. The girl took a step forward. Are you from the government? Amos slowly stood up. Otto calmly walked between the girl and Margaret. Yes, honey, we're from the government. How did you know? Because my brother said you would come. Margaret wanted out of there. Now. They had come for the girl, but it never crossed their minds that someone else in the house might be infected. Oh no, do you smell natural gas? Margaret did, suddenly and strong, coming from the kitchen. Get the girl out of here, Otto said. His voice was quiet, calm, but totally commanding. Do it now. Margaret stood and ran the three steps to Missy, then hesitated. She didn't want to touch the little girl. What if she had those things? What if they were wrong and she was contagious? Margaret, get her out of here now. She ignored her instincts and picked the girl up, her skin crawling as she did. She took one step toward the door, but before she could take another, the kitchen door opened. The little boy walked out, holding a cap gun in each hand. The smell of gas billowed out of the kitchen. He still wore the cowboy hat, but not the mask. He only had one eye. The other socket held a misshapen blue lump under the skin that had pushed out his eyelids and eyebrow to obscene proportions. The lump stretched the eyelid out and open, showing a blackish, gnarled, textured skin underneath. Whatever it was, it had grown between the boy's eye and his eyelids. His eye was back there, somewhere, behind that thing. You've been bad, the little boy said. I'm gonna have to gun you down. He raised the cap guns. Amos raced past Margaret, heading for the door. She turned and ran with him, still carrying the girl. Heavy footsteps told her that Agenata was right behind her. Margaret ran out the door as she heard the caps firing, the boy pulling the trigger over and over again. She made it out the front porch and was down the steps when the gas finally ignited. It wasn't a big explosion, so much as it was a really large woof. It didn't even blow out the windows like on TV, just gave them a good rattle. She kept running and felt the heat on her back. Just because it didn't explode didn't mean it wasn't hot, didn't mean the house wasn't burning, and didn't mean the little boy wasn't already engulfed in flames. I want to take a second to tell you about a podcast I think you'll really like, Mayday. No one is prepared for disaster. No one knows exactly how they'll react in a plane crash, an earthquake, or when a lone gunman decides to open fire. On Mayday, you'll hear about the people who had to find out, people whose stories deserve to be heard. Join hosts Maya Nalani and Luke Welland as they tell you about extraordinary people who found themselves in extraordinary circumstances. Listen to Mayday wherever you get your podcasts. Chapter 40. Dinner is served. Perry loaded up his plate and managed to hop to the couch without spilling any of the rice ragu concoction. He slumped into the waiting cushions, winced at the waves of pain that shot through his leg, then gripped his fork and dug into the meal, not knowing if it would be his last. 
The ragu wasn't thick enough to make the rice clump, so it was more like a heavy soup than Spanish rice. But it was still tasty, and it quelled his stomach's rumbling. He shoveled it in as if he'd never seen food before in his life. Man, wouldn't a quarter pounder and some supersized fries hit the spot right now? Or Hostess Cupcakes? Or a Baby Ruth Bar? Or a big old steak and some broccoli with a nice white cheese sauce? No, no, scratch all the above. A bajillion soft tacos from Taco Hell would be the most satisfying thing on the planet. Cram them down with fire sauce and a bottomless cup of Mountain Dew. It wasn't that his rice was bad, but the texture just didn't ring of solid food, and his stomach longed to be filled like a water balloon on a steamy hot summer day. Summer. Now that would have been a nice season to die. His timing, as usual, was terrible. He could have contracted this illness in the spring or in the summer, or at least in the fall. All three seasons were unbelievably beautiful in Michigan. Trees everywhere, either bursting with new growth greenery or exploding in the spectacular jewel-reflection colors that heralded the coming winter. Michigan is just so green once you get outside the cities and towns, out onto the innumerable country roads. The highways to northern Michigan and the Upper Peninsula are a black slash of pavement, cutting through an endless sea of forest and farmland that sprawls out on either side. Farmland, forest, swamps, water. The three-hour drive from Mount Pleasant to Sheboygan was interrupted by little more than roadkill and highway stop towns like Gaylord that presented a splotch of buildings and cars before they were gone, fading into the rearview mirror like the vestiges of a tasteless dream that dissipates into the buttery solution of delicious sleep. Summer was warm, at least early summer. Later on in the season, the true nature of Michigan swamps revealed themselves in sweltering humidity, clammy sweat, swarms of mosquitoes and black flies. But even that posed little problem, as you were never more than five or ten minutes' drive from a lake. Back home, swimming in Mullet Lake, cool water leaching away the oppressive heat, sun blasting down, turning white bodies red, and leaving streamers in the eye from where it bounced off the surface like a million infinitely bright, tiny supernovas. As perfect as summer could be, winter was equally oppressive. Sure, it was beautiful in its own right, with snow-covered trees, sprawling fields converted to expanses of white nothingness bordered by woods and dotted with farmhouses snugly nestled into the landscape. But beauty didn't hold much over substance when that substance was freeze your balls off cold. Up north, the winters were spectacular. Down in the southern part of the state, where population expansion never ceased, the forests and fields were only something he glimpsed on the way to work. Here, winter made life miserable. Cold, freezing, wet, icy. And even the snow looked dirty, pushed to the side of the road in mangy, gravel-embedded slush piles. Sometimes the trees were bedecked with an inch of snow on every last branch and twig. But most of the time they were barren, brown, dead, and lifeless. That's why he'd always wanted to make sure he was cremated when he died. He couldn't imagine spending eternity in the frozen soil of a Michigan winter. And yet his last days played out in that same Michigan winter. Even if the soldiers could find him, what could they do for him? How far gone was this monotone cancer that shouted in his head like Sam Kinison on a bad acid trip? He scraped the last grains of rice into his mouth. Pretty tasty, eh? He tossed the plate carelessly onto the coffee table. 
Hey, he was dying. No point in cleaning up the mess now, was there? High-pitched fuzzy noise babbled in his head. We don't taste, just absorb. Don't. A contraction. How about that? The starting five's vocab was improving. He leaned back into the couch's familiar cushions. His stomach rumbling gradually subsided, then ceased. Staring out at the blank TV screen, he was struck by a sudden question. What to do? During this entire bizarre scenario, he'd never exactly had to worry about entertainment. He'd either been sleeping, passed out, cutting into himself like some freak from a Clive Barker movie, or talking to the starting five. The one time he'd tried to watch a little TV, good old Columbo had gotten him into more trouble than he cared to remember. But with TV out of the question, what was he going to do? He had, of course, brought computer books home from work in order to study at home, but he'd be fucked if he'd spend whatever hours he had reading about managing Unix networks or integrating open-source code. He did, however, like the idea of reading something, anything that might give him even a few moments reprieve from this awful situation. He was about a third of the way through The Shining by Stephen King, but hadn't read a single page in weeks. Well, now was his opportunity. He wasn't going anywhere. And perhaps engrossing himself in the book would relieve his mind from the background battle of not thinking about the soldiers, and how loud the screams would be if he did think about them. But first he had to clean the spaghetti sauce off his face and hands. Dinner had been a little messy. The stains on his sweatshirt he could care less about, obviously, but that sticky, tacky feeling on his face would distract him. He slowly rose from the couch and hopped to the bathroom, contemplating another trip down Tylenol Lane while he was at it. The pain in his leg was starting to get worse again. He let the sink run until the water reached near scalding temperatures, then washed off his face and hands. Gazing at his wet face in the mirror, he couldn't help but again think of the George Romero classic Night of the Living Dead. He could have been one of the walking departed. Skin with a sickly gray pallor, Deep circles hanging under his bloodshot eyes. Dry hair askew. But it wasn't all bad. His paunch had vanished. His muscles looked well-defined for the first time in years. He could even see the beginnings of his six-pack. He'd lost at least 15 pounds, all of it fat, in the past few days. He moved his arm and watched his deltoid flutter, muscle fibers visible and rippling. Great fucking diet plan, Perry thought. I'd like to see Richard Simmons compete with this. There was more to see than his musculature. He hadn't looked in on one of the triangles in quite a while. He wasn't sure if he wanted to see what they looked like now. Maybe they were bigger, enlarging themselves as they continued their march on Mount Perry. He had to look. The one near his neck was the most convenient. Perry pulled back his sweatshirt collar, exposing the triangle beneath. It lay just above the collarbone, near the trapezius. That was the first muscle name he'd learned. When he was a child, his father would grab the trapezius with a paralyzing grip that made Mr. Spock's little nerve pinch pale by comparison. Man, oh man, how that had hurt. Dad usually accompanied the pinch with a phrase like, It's my house and you're going to live by my rules. Or, the ubiquitous, You've got to have discipline. Perry pushed away thoughts of his father and concentrated on the triangle. It was bluer, now more like a new tattoo rather than a faded one, and firmer, the edges clearly defined. 
Just as his fluttering muscles became more obvious, seemingly by the hour, the triangle's rough texture was beginning to show through the skin. He tested the skin with a poke from his free hand. Definitely firmer. He leaned in over the sink until his face was only six inches from the mirror, allowing himself the best look he'd ever had at one of the little invaders. He stared at the edges, at the slits, at the blueness, at the pores of his skin that looked perfectly normal except for the thing underneath. He noticed the number of blue lines that extended out from the triangle. Used blood. Deoxygenated. Same shade as the little veins on his wrists. That's why the triangles appeared blue. They took in oxygen from his own blood through their tails or whatever. The blood worked its way up the tiny body, and the deoxygenated blood dissipated on top, just under the skin. It all made perfect sense. The slits seemed much more developed than the last time he'd looked. They had a pucker to them, almost like thin lips, or maybe like... like... A snippet of their voice flashed back to him. No, we cannot see. Not yet. Not yet. Oh my God. Don't let that be what I think it is. Once again, God wasn't listening. Each of the three slits opened, revealing the deep, black, shiny surfaces underneath. If there was any question as to what they were, it disappeared when all three sets of lids blinked in unison. He was looking at his collarbone, and his collarbone was looking right back at him. Motherfucker, Perry said, panic once again creeping into his voice. When were these things going to stop growing? What was next? Were they going to grow out of him? Grow little hands and feet or claws and tails? His breath came in thin, shallow gasps. His eyes fuzzed out of focus, his mind seeming to go away somewhere for a quick break. Hopping had become so normal for him that he managed to get back to the couch and plunk down without breaking his trance. His brain ran on autopilot, like a movie that played on and on and on, while Perry sat back and watched, unable to change the channel, unable to look away from the flashing images. He remembered a show he'd seen on the Learning Channel. There was this wasp, evil little fucker. It attacked a specific type of caterpillar. The wasp didn't kill the caterpillar, only paralyzed it for a while, during which time the wasp laid eggs inside the caterpillar. Inside, thank you very fucking much. The wasp, its mission complete, then flew off. The caterpillar woke up and went on about its leaf-munching life, apparently unaware of the vile disease incubating in its guts. It was the most horrible thing Perry had ever seen. The wasp eggs didn't just hatch and rip their way out of the caterpillar. They ate their way out. When the eggs hatched, the new wasp larva fed on the caterpillar's innards, and they grew. The caterpillar struggled for life, but could do nothing about the larva eating it from the inside. The caterpillar's skin bulged, rippled, moved, as the larva inside continued to eat, methodically chewing away at its guts with the same slow, robot-like precision that the caterpillar used to dispose of a leaf. It was appalling. It was a living cancer. And to make it worse, via some horrid instinct, the larvae knew what to eat. They consumed the fat and internal organs while leaving the heart and brain alone, preserving the crawling buffet for as long as possible. So perfect was the larva's evolution that they didn't kill the caterpillar until they finished their growth cycle. As they ripped their way out of the caterpillar's skin, 
glistening with the wet slime of the chewed guts. Their victim kept squirming, writhing, with what little energy it had left. Amazingly alive, even though its innards had been munched on like the Sunday breakfast bar at Big Boy. Was that what faced Perry? Were they consuming him from the inside? But if that was the case, then why were they always screaming at him to eat? They weren't going to take over his mind. That much was obvious. If they could take over his mind, they wouldn't need eyes, now would they? Maybe this was just the first stage. If they could grow eyes, why not a mouth? Why not teeth? He calmed himself, forcing himself to focus, to think logically. He was, after all, an educated man. A college boy, his daddy would say. All he had to do was think, and maybe he could come up with some answers on his own. He just didn't have enough information to form any kind of hypothesis, nothing to go on. No clues. Even Columbo would have been stuck with this one. Of course, Columbo would play the blithering buffoon, countering the suave, rich attitudes of his homicidal targets. Columbo would let stupidity show, wear his weakness on his sleeve, allowing his target's confidence to grow and grow and grow until they let something slip, something tiny, something that would normally go unnoticed. Unnoticed by normal eyes, but not Peter Falk's cross-eyed stare. That's what he had to do. Play dumb and get them talking. Hey, fuckers. Hey, hello? What is it you fellas want with me? What do you mean want? Why are you in my body? We don't know. Well, so much for detective work. There was really nothing else to do. Just sit. Sit and wait. He was nothing more than a walking, talking buffet table. Sit and wait. Sit and listen. You gonna let him push you around like that, boy? Another voice. His daddy's voice. It wasn't real. It wasn't a voice in his head like the triangles. It was a memory. No, not a memory. A phantom. His daddy's voice. As if his daddy were with him in spirit. No, daddy. Perry said. His voice a dry husk. I won't let him push me around. He hooked his index finger under his sweatshirt collar and pulled it back violently, ripping it slightly, exposing the triangle on his collarbone. He couldn't see it, but he knew that the icy black eyes were blinking away, taking in the view of the living room and all the knickknacks that Perry had acquired since high school. The fork still sat on the plate, a few rivulets of spaghetti sauce clinging to the tines. Perry grabbed it with a caveman grip, clutched it like a murderous dagger. He giggled once, as he remembered the punchline to an old grade school joke. Fork you, buddy. With all the force he could muster, he jammed the fork into his trapezius. The center tine poked through one of the black eyes with a tiny, wet, crunching noise. The tines kissed off his scapula and out the backside of his trapezius, accompanied by a double squirt of red and purple that landed wetly on the couch's worn, thin upholstery. He wasn't even sure if he felt it. He didn't have time to scream in pain. The triangles took care of that. It wasn't even a scream, really. Just a noise. A loud noise. A fucking hellfire and bear the cross loud noise, blaring like a klaxon alarm stuffed down his auditory canal to rest nicely against his eardrum. He rolled off the couch, thrashing his head in sudden and all-encompassing agony. He rolled onto his back, reached up, grabbed the fork and twisted it, driving it up at an angle deeper into his shoulder. Perry couldn't know that on the second thrust... The fork tines punched a neat hole through the triangle's main nervous column just below its flathead, killing it instantly. Had he known, he probably wouldn't have cared. All he knew 
was that he wasn't a patsy, wasn't some pushover. He was Scary Perry Dossie, and once again whipping ass. You fucks! Perry screamed louder than ever before, perhaps needing to hear himself over the horrid death shriek that raged through his head. How do you like it? How's it feel? Stop, 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 stop! The fuck I'll stop! How's it feel? How's it feel? The tears found their way out of Perry's tightly shut eyes. Pain raged through his body, but his conscious mind felt none of it. Fucker, you will pay. Stop, stop, stop. Bite it, baby. Perry fed on the pain like an alcoholic diving into that first off-the-wagon drink. I'm doing this one, and then I'm calling the soldiers to come get the rest. He twisted the fork again and started to say something, but lost the words when the fork stuck deeply into a tendon. He made the major mistake of giving in to the pain. Rolling in useless protest, his shoulder and the end of the fork hit the front of the couch, driving the prongs in even deeper. Stop, 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 stop! Perry tried opening his eyes, but his vision came only in strobe-like bursts. The klaxon scream in his head was too much to bear. He'd lost again, he knew it, but he couldn't even mutter a single word. Stop, stop! Couldn't tell them he was so sorry. Stop! Couldn't tell Daddy he would behave. Stop! Couldn't beg Daddy to please, God, stop ripping into my brain. Stop, stop. He fell to the ground, motionless, not hearing the angry, irritated stomping coming from the ceiling above. You have been listening to Infected, book one of the Infected Trilogy by Scott Sigler. Performed by the author. Produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Every five minutes, a transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price, and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.